Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerd to Me podcast. On this special episode, we're excited to bring you Volume 1 of Ted and Fred's Excellent Adventure. In this episode, Professor Carey answers questions that were submitted by our scholars. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Dr. Freddie Garcia, and we're joined by the Honorable Professor Carrick. Dr. Carrick, how are you doing today? Marvelous, Freddie. It's good to see you, as always. You know, I sent an email out and I posted on social media saying, hey, listen, I have an opportunity to connect with Dr. Carrick, and I get to ask him their questions to you. Normally, I bother you all the time, and I get to ask you my questions, because uh, I'm selfish like that, but I said, hey, let's hear from them. Let's hear what they want to ask you. So I have a, a list of questions, right? a large list, actually. And I want to go through the, uh, some of them, uh, if we can do that today. Is that okay? Yeah, I think that sounds fun. It, and, you know, you uh, you know how to do it, but certainly we've got a, a lot of questions. And you and I just usually have our chat, so we can make this just easy as we always do it. And and hopefully, uh, hopefully give some good information to people. So, and we're going to have some coffee together. So be happy. There That's it is. All right. So let's go through some questions here. This one is actually specific to the pandemic and scope of practice. So uh, it says, Dr. Carrick, do you feel that the recent pandemic makes scopes of practice either more specific or enlarges the scope given a potential new perception by the public about wellness? Well, that's a heavy question. Um, I don't think that anything is going to really affect our scope. Uh, of, of practice, but certainly the perception of what we do will definitely change, not only from a patient's perspective, but from the doctor's perspective. And I think that we're learning how to do telemedicine uh, markedly better. I had made a, a post just the other day, which was really uh, amazing for me because it's something that I normally wouldn't have done with a patient that was very afraid that he had uh, COVID-19, just in bed, feeling terrible, sick to his stomach, couldn't move, and knew he was going to die. And um, very high profile, very, very high profile person in our, in our society. So uh, to make the long and the short, I was able to do a Skype. And with his wife, I was able to look, and, and I was very comfortable uh, that I had an impression he had BPPV. I talked to the wife and him. I did a sim with her with a little soccer ball as a head and and she could follow what I was going to say, told him and her that they're not gonna like this. As you know, it's terrifying when you have that, just you know, putting them into a spurlinks position or so is they don't like it. And I, I say, you gotta trust me, you're gonna feel just terrible, you're gonna be afraid, just trust me, it's gonna go away. And if, if we do it right, and we did. And so it was like for them, a miracle, you know, and you've seen them before, but normally they come into the office and I really, it sort of hit me in my soul to think, well, maybe that's the way we should be treating people is, you know, at a distance because the drive in is terrible. A lot of them jump on airplanes. Right. You know, one of the things that I think this pandemic does bring to light is the capability and the effectiveness of clinicians, just like you experienced through telemedicine. I, I think what people are realizing is what would have taken six years for people to be comfortable by operating with their clinicians through a computer, they're now going to be comfortable with it in six months 
due to the need of what's currently going on. A lot of my peers are already online, still seeing their patients, still serving them, and just like you, helping them get better at a time that we wouldn't have been able to see them otherwise. Yeah, it's, it's neat. Uh, early this morning, I had a colleague uh, who's on the front lines of this. He's a surgeon. He couldn't hold his instruments, and uh, he had a history of radiculopathy, so he had a big panic. Anyways, to make a long story short, I was able to intervene, and I gave him some home snags uh, to do that sustained natural apophyseal uh, glides and uh, another sort of a miracle. And people are not comfortable to do it on their own because the direction that they put their eyes in and their head is markedly different. So especially with our scholars being trained in, in neurology and being, I mean, that's, that's the thing you can do. So I, and I know that you're on the phone every day with people, but I know that many of our colleagues have found that the number of patients that they're able to see has dropped, but not that much when they're doing this telemedicine using the skills that, that they have. So I'm very comfortable and confident that our people do have skills. So anyways, back to your question, scope of practice, I don't think that's gonna change, but I do think that we've got an opportunity to change in, in uh, you know, public image. Um, there are many uh, people that are our clinical scholars that are working and seeing patients. And the question is, what is essential? Well, if I can't hold an instrument, I've got to operate on somebody, and I can go to somebody and have a manipulation or something, that's pretty darn essential. And I know talking to people, we've got people like Sergio Azzolino out in the Bay Area who's in there in the trenches, and he's seeing all of these people that are working in, in the front lines and really helping them with their life. And I think that if you've ever had one of these emergencies, especially for those that are chiropractors that have had that intervention, you know what I'm talking about, whether it's uh, uh, how essential is it to be able to move your legs if you can't with, with a low back problem or so. I mean, I know uh, myself, you know, being on the other end of it. And then with our people that are uh, TBI fellows and that, they know so, so much. They can use a variety of instruments very fluently. And especially with eye movements and things like this and head activities, there's a lot of things they can do. So public perception, I think, yeah, definitely we've got the opportunity to become engaged with people. And that is really good. But engaged to help them, not engaged for profit. Uh, you know, and of course, people pay you for the things that you do, but this is nothing to, to generate incomes, although income shouldn't really be interrupted so much if you can do things uh, properly, but having that safe heaven. So, Freddie, did you see um, that Brain EQ has come out with a virtual app? Yeah, I saw that. It is a big update. It seemed like a big deal. Do you have the scoop on it? Yeah, I do. Now, you know, I have a disclosure because I am a, a non-paid a member of the medical advisory board and they picked all of the people basically that that have you know um experience with uh, with concussions and things like that i'm one of them so that's a disclosure there's nothing in it for me other than than that but what they've come out with and again um san sharma he was on the front lines with this sars they understand it, and they've got all of these teams that that are working in Toronto that have this experience at a distance. So what they did 
is they integrated the app so that now you can you can see your patient and talk to them. They can call and talk to you. You can interact with them. They also got a 24-7 where they can see some physician, if not you, but they're not pawned off in anybody that they don't want to have happen. And then away you go. But the neurocognitive testing, and I've looked at them. I mean, they're as exact as exact can, can be. We used it in our recent uh, NHL uh, study, and we compared it to Cambridge and other things. It's different, though. I mean, Cambridge is the best, you know, the best, the best, the best. But this is something that gets you in. It's gamified. But now the interaction, it's phenomenal. The other thing is, you know, dollars and cents. They have a, a new price structure, mainly because of the people in medicine that are using this, many more than, than our people. But they bill for these things, and, you know, there's CPT codes that they can give you. But they have now a clinical price that I think they, and I don't even know what it is, $800 or so. But they, uh, it allows you to see as many as you want. You have 10,000 people, you can do it. So it's, it's really cheap. It's, it's, uh, there's no expense to it uh, that can be done in. So I really love those guys. It's really great. I think everyone should have the brain EQ. I'm dealing now with looking at people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And it's phenomenal advice, especially with the balance app, throwing that thing through the tire. It's well, now, now I'm seeing how you can go from the app. And, and before it used to be like, hey, come on in. I'm starting to see these, these results turning in on for Brain EQ. And now Brain EQ is building the next connection, which is saying, hey, I'm seeing these things. Let's connect right away through the application. Uh, so it's just, which is kind of like where this question started off, right? I don't, you're, you're right. I don't think the scope of practice is going to change, but the public's perception to the clinicians and the public's perception to the tools that they use to connect with them is going to change very quickly. That's yeah. what's going to change. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that doctors are there to serve patients and to do their best job. So all of these things, when you're looking at diagnostics and you know, those are billable uh, aspects. And uh, the one thing with the EQ is it's FDA approved and it's licensed and it's accredited, it's HIPAA compliant, so you can use it for telemedicine. Whereas, I mean, I'm using like Skype and FaceTime, which is not secure, but I'm doing it. I mean, I'm sort of breaking, you know, the chance to help people. So it makes me a lot more comfortable when you have a secure, uh, a secure, you know, medical grade uh, application. So scope of practice phrase, I, I don't think so. However, stranger things have happened. I know, for instance, um, in California, the uh, naturopaths uh, or naturopaths, however we say it, have been given full prescription rights for everything. So their scope has been upped because of this uh, demand. Um, and I know that there are many um, chiropractors, for instance, that do funk medicine and other things, you know, well care, perhaps that's, that's on in regards to this. I don't really know, but I can tell you that being front and central and active in your community, as I know you are, as I know I am, I'm with my group every day from Mass General Hospital Institute, talking my people at Cambridge and, and at our medical school here at University of Central Florida, I'm a full professor of neurology. We're talking all of the time and seeing not only how we can help uh, our colleagues, but also how we help humankind. The world is changing and our perception is, is changing. So I think you have to be active. You have to be actively involved in your community. Um, and that active involvement doesn't mean talking about things that you're not 
qualified and who is. There's only a few people that can really talk about what we're seeing in regards to this virus from CDC or something else. And it's really important to defer uh, to them. So I don't know if we, you and I addressed that question, um, but that's about the best I can think of it. Hey, Professor Kirk, I'm gonna, you mentioned something. You mentioned the snags. Now, rumor has it, I call it a rumor because I think I know the answer. Rumor has it that when you're doing some of these vestibular repositioning maneuvers, that some people have not noticed that you're also using snags while doing them. Is, is, that well, rumor, is that rumor true? Well, it's not a rumor, it's the truth, but if you've ever been with me, then how can you miss it? Uh, I do them differently. And uh, from for the last 41 years, so when I do a positioning maneuver, but I, I go further in the snags, I manipulate their necks uh, when I'm doing repositioning maneuvers. But you'll see I'll do different things that other people do. So people will do these barbecue rolls, or they'll see me do, they say, what the heck is he doing there? But if you've been on rounds with me, then you've seen it. And uh, if you've been in the room with me, then usually you hear it uh, because there's some audible uh, consequence. But I've been doing them for years. I've never published on this, but the physical therapy people uh, from Australia have done a marvelous job with some good RCTs. And if you use snags in the upper cervical spine, you're going to have a greater uh, ability to defeat dizziness than you are with vestibular rehab and things like that. So they're really good. Um, knowing when to use them and how to use them is another deal, but I've used them, boy, I mean, I mean, I can't even remember as long as I've used them. They just make sense and uh, they're good. It's one of those things that once I realized what you were doing, uh, it suddenly opened my eyes into, into my own technique. So I figured I'd, I'd mention that because I think some people are still reviewing some of your old videos and not seeing everything that's actually going Right. Or taking place when you're working with those patients. Let's uh, let's do another question here, mm -hmm. uh, Professor Carrick. What would be your best advice to a young practitioner, say one that's three years just out of school? Get old fast. <laughs> In other words, it's experience, and um, you know, young heads, old heads. There's a little bit of a learning curve. I think that you need to be humble and. The reality is, is that our jobs are difficult and you're not gonna be as good today as you are in 10 years. And if you've been out for 30 years, you should be better in 31 years. So respect for, for other people with experience is, is really good. Be reasonable. Uh, the one good thing for young practitioners is to realize in other disciplines, there's long residency programs of trainings for a surgical residency is five years and they get paid really crap for 80 hour weeks, you know, after they go. And sometimes we see it uh, all the time where you'll see a, a new graduate and they'll get out and, and they want to make big bucks. And you have to look at reasonable aspects. If you want to make big bucks, probably, you know, real estate's a good deal or selling, you know, business deal. Um, Healthcare practitioners can become very uh, well rewarded financially for what they're doing, but it takes some time. I do think in order to get there that you need to, that you need to study and you need to involve yourself with lifelong learning. So, uh, and again, we have a different view on our educational sharing. We're the people that do it. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of courses that are available. Some are good, some are not so good. And I think that you need to be judicious um, when you take a course. For instance, if you're taking a course from a clinician, go and see that clinician in their actual office. Sometimes you'll be very surprised at what you see. Uh, you know, there's people that really do it and do it well. So if you're going to learn a surgical technique uh, for a knee, you, you want to talk to somebody who's done a few thousand of them, not somebody who has been taught by the guy that's done uh, 2,000 of them. So I think that's really important. But there's a lot of free stuff available uh, that you can learn and read. But you can't learn about patients from a textbook. You have to see patients and you need to have that bit of exposure. We've got some marvelously trained clinicians um, that we've trained that are all around the world, and they usually welcome people to shadow. I think it's really super, super important to, to pick these best people and go out and see what they're doing and really get inspired by it. And you'll find that they're humble with what they do, and you'll also find out if you're new, you go, boy, I'll never be as smart as those guys. But I can tell you, you will, and probably be be smarter uh, just from from time. It just takes some takes some time. Join your national association that's responsible. Join, for instance, the Council of Neurology. And again, like Kennedy, don't ask what my council can do for me, but what I can, you know, do for my council and things like that. And then contribute. Uh, go to, you know, meetings, whether it be a neurological meeting at your hospital or community or, you know, whatever. Go and, 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 and see, see things and surround yourself with good people um, that aren't selling you something. I think that although there's some good courses from uh, product developers, I think Micromedical has got some good courses, whereas, of course, they sell things. But in general, um, you really want to be sort of independent of something that would have a sales. Because yeah, you want to remove, remove any bias. You really want to. Uh, I think it's appropriate. And then, uh, and there's some good people that are involved with some good products, but they're going to tell you, like, you know, I make money off of this product. This is my product. I'm going to tell you, you know, what I do to use it. And it could be the best thing ever, but at least know what you're doing. And if they tell you that, it's like shopping for a car. You know, when you go to the one dealership, if the guy is banging the other sort of cars, you know that you probably don't want to buy his. If it's good, he doesn't have to say anything about him. That's the way I always bought my cars. So, uh, again, be humble. Surround yourself with, with uh, good people and realize that there's a lot to learn and you're not going to do it in a day. You're going to make a lot of errors. If you don't make errors, then you're really not pushing the envelope. You're in a little bit of a comfort zone. You're, if, if you stand really close to the dartboard, you're always going to get it in the, in the bullseye. So you've got to get back and, and play with the team and then uh, be accountable for it. Like a lot of us, if you listen to some people, some doctors, they never have any bad outcomes. Well, I can tell you, I've had terrible outcomes um, in my life because I, you know, I'm aggressive and I, and I, do, I, I do all I can for people and then I try not to have bad outcomes for the next one. But the more people you see of a greater difficulty, uh, you're not going to have an outcome that you might, you, you might uh, expect. So, you know, being, being reasonable. And 
uh, I can tell you, uh, we've got a very good staff at Carrick Institute. If you're starting out, it doesn't cost you anything to call and speak to us and we can give you names of, of good people within our discipline out that can talk to you. As a matter, let, let me just tell you, I had a wonderful letter from a new doctor um, in the NA, NHS in England. And she's just graduated, she's been out for two years and she's thinking neurology, psychiatry, where should she go, this and that. And so she knows me from Cambridge. She called me like, what can I do? And I was able to connect her with a psychiatrist who's just like the top, top, top person, I think, at Johns Hopkins. And I know her from my group at Harvard. And uh, they developed a mentor-mentee relationship that just clicked. So I think it's important. We pride ourselves that we might not be able to, to give all of the answers, but we can certainly connect you with people that can. And we have people that take advantage of that. It's beautiful. But we've got some really talented people that are in our sphere that can help. And it doesn't have to be us. And I can tell you, we're humble enough to know uh, the things that we do. I talk about things that I do really well. And I don't talk about things that I don't do really well. I don't really think that you can do everything really well, unless you're like some super, super human. I've never met one but there are some things that we can do super, super well. So you'll find that some guy will just operate on shoulders, another guy just on knees. Why not do the whole thing? So when I had my knee, I don't like to go to somebody who does a hip and then followed by a knee, followed by a shoulder, followed by, I want a guy that's just doing knees. That's, that's what I want to do, you know? And uh, anyways, and I'm sort of rambling here, but I think, you know, advice to young practitioner is, don't chase the money and these management schemes and that. Uh, you're not going to be making a lot of money at first. And, you know, my own thing, when I started out, well, I did really well really fast, but I did it because I didn't have any expectation of, of making. I just wanted to help people as best I, I could. So there you, you know, have it. I love this question. If I could add to it, I, I was actually on the phone this morning with somebody from England as well. And they were kind of asking me, it's a question I get very often, where to go, what do I do? And, uh, you know, we're kind of laughing because we're both ad admitting that when you leave school, at first, when you first get out, you think, wow, I have all the tools to be really successful and do all the things that I want to accomplish. And you quickly realize, once you start getting more complicated cases, that you don't. That's actually the beginning of your learning, right? And, and, and I think, uh, what's that effect? where you at the beginning when you come out of school you think you know more than you know yeah well it's <laughs> it's 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 the deal we study all the time the curve is you come out and you're smarter than everybody and the more you do it it starts going way 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 down then it comes up a little bit now neva howard had a great presentation you know neva she's just like super genius you know started with a phd in physics concert violinist world famous in regards to that she does emergency medicine, but she had shown a study uh, that showed the competency level of people listening to heart sounds. And that if you look at a first year medical student with heart sounds uh, and somebody that's been out for 10 years, they're about the same. And after 10 years, the medical student with no experience is better than this guy here, unless they were people that were residencies or academic medicine that keep on increasing. So you need to have time and rank 
but you need to constantly be a lifelong learner. So, and I can give you, you know, something that we do that we take very seriously. We use different cue streams and interactions so that when people take a course with us, they, after that course, they still get bombarded with questions that are designed to promote this lifelong learning. And I know that we give people lifelong access, for instance, to anything that they've done, uh, you know, at no extra charge. Now that may be dated, but at least it's there. And hopefully uh, we give them the, the skills to be able to think. We've developed a problem-based learning uh, model that teaches people how not only to read and interpret the literature, but to look at a patient experience and then say, how can I do this better? And let me tell you, when I listen to, again, new people right out of school, say three years or so, that are in our programs, I am so proud because they're a blank canvas and they learn so quickly and they just sponge it in and then contribute. So it takes them, you know, two or three modules, but in our problem-based activities, they catch it. You know, they've got better brains, they're younger, you know, and uh, they can just do marvelous things. So I think guidance, structured learning, learning with a pedagogy that is going to develop in mastery of skills and, and trustable practitioner activities is the, uh, is the way to, to go. But we're certainly proud of them, you know. And At one point you mentioned shadowing people. Um, when I was talking to that scholar this morning, I said, you know, I, I start admiring and respecting these experienced clinicians when they, I ask them a question and their answer is, it depends. I think in my younger years, I wanted somebody who would, you know, very proudly have that definitive answer because that's what the expectation was. But I think the more you learn, you suddenly realize that the answer most of the time is, it depends. It depends on these variables that the young practitioner isn't even aware of yet because they haven't been practicing long enough, you know, and, and what makes it confusing when people are choosing their education is that people want to buy, people want to purchase their education based off of the assurance that they're always going to be given the right answer. Like it's a definitive thing. Like there's an algorithm that spits it out and it's really not that simple. You need to teach people how to think. So you take that real answer, which is it depends, and you teach them how to think about the problem so they can come closer to an answer. And they still need to test it out. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting, Freddie, is I remember just like yesterday, you know that when I would do uh, rounds in my clinic, we would see just large numbers of patients sent from around the world. And we'd have, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of people that would assist and watch. And because of the volume that I would see and attract, they become very popular. But I remember uh, one question from, from Krista Hubbard, one of our colleagues who was sort of a right-hand person. And she goes, that was just absolutely amazing, like a miracle. Why, why did you do that? And I, I looked at her and I said, why didn't you ask me why I would never do that again? Because I can make it better next time. And here's the reality that when you get these outstanding outcomes, that doesn't mean that that would be the limit of that outcome. So every time when I see a patient and, you know, rather than saying, boy, how good was I? I was like, how could I have done that better? And I can tell you without equivocation that I probably would never do the same thing again on a patient because when I see a good outcome, I think, boy, I... I could have done this, this, or this. So it, 
So it really changes. I'm not satisfied with my own uh, assessment of superior mediocrity, <laughs> if, you, if you would. So that's, that's the reality of it. Excellent. Hey, Dr. Kirk, let's do, let's do one more. Uh, let's see here. All right. Pete, you know, there were a lot of questions actually about history, historical stuff, where you came from, how you came to be so good at what you did. So let's do this one here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the first thing that got you involved or interested in the nervous system and its function um, when you were a student? Was it an experience at college that pushed you in your direction? Or was it your love for neurology uh, that was established earlier on? They're, they were very interested in your path and where your curiosity came from, uh, which, you know what, I, I got to tell you, I want to hear about this. Where did this all come from? Boy, that's a long one. Um, well, I can tell you, I don't think I've ever had a love for neurology ever, but I have had a love for humankind. And the two sort of go hand in hand. And I realized very early in my, in my life, um, you know, with the variety of things that I've done, that some people had different abilities to, to march or to shoot a gun or to throw a bayonet or to you know do a variety of things or to think of a plan uh, than other people did so i realized that there was different abilities of people and i realized that those abilities were a lot of them were like you know being a jock or when you're boxing you know that maybe you're, you, you could be better than somebody else and the whole thing was was based upon you know the brain and nervous system that's it so I fell in love with human function as a very young man before I understood the basis of what that function was. But I could measure it. I could know that somebody was going to be faster than me uh, with their right hand, and I would develop a strategy that that would never happen because I would find a weakness and and go in there. I became you know pretty good at those sorts of things in clinical. You keep, talking, you keep talking about striking. You boxed, didn't you? Yeah. I, I can tell. Yeah. And, you know, and the, you know, the karate thing, and every, I mean, everyone's got black belts. But when I did, it took me a lot longer than these people do nowadays. Um, but that's the, you know, that's the way of, the way of things. Anyways, um, when we look at clinical activities, I was thrust into uh, clinical practice starting from, from nothing and I was really lucky because I had good powers of observation and I saw things that other people uh, didn't see um, and that's that's a skill that I learned when you know walking to the hockey rink and looking at the constellations and being able to see you know different things in them so I learned to observe and I learned how to drive down the the road and remember every license plate of every car that passed by or you know looking at you know different things you know how many matches in a matchbox so i learned those things and i learned them pretty well i learned things almost like if you look at uh, giordano bruno uh, who's probably influential to me you know these 16th century people he got burned at the stake you know for copernican sort of neo-aristotelian beliefs but he would take um mindful things and put them in silos and be able to retrieve them. So I learned to do that very early. I didn't have TV. The TV that we did have eventually is only black and white and we only get Ed Sullivan and Hockey Night in Canada. So there's no distractions, but uh, I, 
and I took things and learned to put them in my mind silo so that I could recite uh, something. And I remembered, I remember like yesterday, I don't know, it was eight or nine, I was reading about Giordano Bruno and he, he went and did a, a demonstration in front of the Pope where he memorized and, 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 and actually talked about this song, word for word, boom, boom. And it was a complicated song. And everyone said, wow, that's amazing that he memorized that. And then he just sort of looked and said, well, let me show you something more amazing. And then he recited the entire song backwards. And for me as a young kid, I thought, isn't that great? So I learned to do that. And uh, so I would uh, sort of impress myself because there wasn't too many other people to talk about where I would read a book and I'd put it in a silo and then I would say, pick whatever page I'd do it and I'd do it. But then I could see that page and I would read it backwards. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. My mentor got burned at the stake. It didn't do too well for him. So that's an interesting little bit of a story of putting things into perspective. Now, in regards to uh, the neurology or brain, I, did, I didn't know what a brain was. I mean, you know, we've got one. But when I saw patients and I saw them losing memories uh, and I saw different, different aspects, I started to understand that function. And then I started to realize that when I would do different things, and I was very observant of joint movements and gait and kinesthesis, speed of movement. I loved, uh, you know, this idea, you know, when you play judo and you can, you know, take someone and do some mat stuff. I love that sort of thing. And that's basically, you know, manipulation or adjustment. So when I found that when joints weren't moving, I would do things and I would look and I'd see different functional things. I'd see, you know, the blink responses would increase or I get a smile on the face when they were flat before. They could walk a little bit faster. And it, it really excited me. And I felt very comfortable to realize that I could understand this gait was better, but I didn't have the skills to quantify it, so then I would read about gait, and then I would put those that information in different silos, and away we go. So I remember myself and my good friend who was the forensic odontologist. This is a guy that solves crimes by looking at your teeth, and we would do some crazy things together. I, I would go to the prison with him, with somebody who had murdered someone and bitten somebody and taking you know bites uh, just, and I'm looking at this guy and he's doing the bite. And I'm looking at his eyes. I'm looking at these aberrant saccades before I knew what a saccade was. I go, that was, I never seen that sort of look on anybody before. And I get excited with that. And the same guy, Gordon is, hey, hey, Ted, you know, give me this panel. He's got some guy's head in it. And he put it in acid and dissolve all of the, the meat to look at these teeth. Anyways, we went down to Harvard together uh, in the very late 70s, early, early 80s and started uh, studying with the people, uh, Monroe Kaiserling and Stover Snook in regards to isometric lifting capacities. And then um, my clinical experience just boomed. I was getting people sent in. Uh, this is before Facebook and advertising and all of this sort of thing from, from around the country. And then I started getting people from China, from the Soviet Union. When the wall was up, it was really nuts. and. Um, I, I was comfortable making observations, but then I would take those observations and try to learn about the individual components associated with those observations. 
and learn from a lot of people. And, and a lot of the people that were pivotal in my learning were dead people because I read stuff from centuries ago. So, and I would look at art, it always did me very well. I look at these people of suffering and, and I'd say, boy, I've seen that sort of a face on someone who's been shot or stabbed. I've seen that before. And I'd look at this and the religiosity of, of that and then take it into more conceptual uh, terms. As a consequence of that, um, my clinical outcomes started to get better and better and better, but we're not focused on a thing of uh, uh, this test means that I'll do this. I've never been like that. I still am not. And then uh, as a consequence of it, um, I became, you know, pretty well known and, you know, I flew airplanes, so I'd fly out. I was invited by uh, Dr. Jancy, who was, again, I never went to national, but he sort of gave me a charge. He said, you've got your responsibility to teach what you know. The, the biggest problem was I didn't know what I knew. And then Ernest Napolitano at NYCC, he said the same thing. You've got to do that. So it's okay. So I built a, uh, I built a, uh, a school, a great big classroom next to my clinic. And in my clinic, I mean, I had, uh, I built a swimming pool because I did aqua therapy. I did you know, all of these things for telemetry. Anyways, and then all of a sudden I had to quantify, say, okay, well, what do I know? I didn't know what I knew. I mean, I knew I did observations. So that's how we developed this idea to just to try to teach people what I knew with the reality that I didn't know how to teach and I didn't know what I knew, um, but I could share a clinical experience. So people would see videos uh, and it was like miracles. And it, it was it was so miraculous that we had some people saying, well, Carrick just hires actors because how could this ever possibly happen? And of, of course, those are old stories. People know it, know it happens. And then to try to explain it led me to the nervous system and led me to, to try to understand it. So one of the, the people at Harvard introduced me to someone from USC as Paul Broland. And I knew I needed more education and I wanted to do a PhD to understand mind and brain and how these things went. So uh, I was going to do a program at Harvard, then at USC with these guys. And this one guy turned me on to Walden. I was going to do plain neurophysiology. And so you don't want to do that because you're looking at test tubes and, and things. You want to deal with people. So um, he turned me on to this Walden program that gave me the opportunity to understand education or mind-body experience. And then I did many stages where I learned to work with rats and animals and looking at conditioning and looking at inside of the cytoarchitectonic areas. And that really helped me understand uh, how to explain what we're doing in the nervous system and explain what I was, uh, what I was seeing. And it, it, was, it was pretty uh, humblingly uh, wonderful. It took me, you know, a lot of time. I used to be in the clinic at seven in the morning till 11 at night and people used to camp out and try to get in. I could not see the number of patients. It used to be really uh, people would be crying and then, and then I would jump in my airplane and I'd fly down to New York or to California and I'd give a lecture and fly back and 
uh, it was a little bit exhausting and a lot of sacrifice because I had to, uh, you know, miss time for my kids and things growing up, you know, missing the proms and things because it was, I, I worked seven days a week. I never took a vacation um, because I had, you know, people to, to, to serve and that was important to me. And when we talk about service to others above self, I, I've always held that really uh, as, as a prime aspect. So no regrets uh, with that. But I, I think that for other people who sacrifice a lot more than me, you know, living in the, in the jungle and helping people and no families and, and things like that, uh, there, there is sacrifice with what we're, we're doing. So that, that is basically my journey into the nervous system, observing things that I didn't know what it was. And then to learn about the little things in, in the silos of my mind uh, that I have it. And interestingly, I still have those same silos. I have all those little filing cabinets. So you can ask me about something or a person or, you know, I did some translations. I, you know, you learn different languages, but I, I did some translations of Clement of Alexandria one of the, the first Nicene Pope to understand Homer and understand the role of the church in regards to human suffering and journeys of Odysseus and Christ figures. And, and I can tell you verbatim the exhortation of the heathens that was written, you know, in the first century. And, and, you know, I had that and it's not effortful for me. So I, and I think those are teachable moments that you can, you, they're, they're not innate gifts, maybe some of it, but you can be taught to be an observer and you can be taught how to, to learn. You can't memorize it, but you can snapshot and you can file and learn from your experiences. So um, that is the deal. And then to Dr. Jancy was really pivotal, even though both him and Ernest Napolitano died shortly after they gave me their charge. They left me. And so there I was, you know, if I think that things could have been a lot smoother if I had their guidance. And, um, but we became really big, I, you know, clinically I was seeing people and then teaching or learning to teach and sharing and people were very um, assisting with me and appreciative of my, uh, inabilities to probably do a great job as an educator at those times and uh, realized that I had something to share and that I was trying to do it as best. And then other people would would look at a patient and say, well, how did this happen? And I would look and say, you know, I don't really know, but let me think of how I can explain it based upon things that we know today. And in, in order to do that, I had to study and learn the things that were known that maybe give us a better picture. So my explanations of how we do things has also changed. I could give you a wonderful dissertation of how stimulation mechanoreceptors explained everything that I do today, but I don't believe that that's true anymore. But I did believe it, it that that's what I knew. And the more I know, the different, you know, the more explanation that I have. But the one thing that I can share with clinicians about the nervous system is that if you can make an observation, then you're, you're going to have the skills to know if that observation changes 
as a consequence of something that you do. And uh, that is really cool. And we, we do all these sorts of little party games where people will put someone in a VNG and I'll just look at the person without it. But I can, I can tell you exactly what's happening with those eyes that you can see in the VNG, for sure, without a doubt. And um, that's a skill. Other people have it. It's not limited to me. But then you say, well, why would you even use the VNG? And the answer is, well, because patients like to see it, you know? In other words, I can tell you that you've got psychotic intrusions, but you, you, what, what is it? Well, they see it. It's, so that's a really good, you know, educational uh, tool. And we can change them. Uh, again, um, we're doing it. So right now, what we're doing with Carrick Institute, we've got two books. Uh, one book um, edit with our editors, Ahmed Hanker, if you look inside the cover, it's from Harvard, Stanford, and Carrick Institute. This is incredible, right? Uh, where we have a book on Islamophobia. How does that affect what we do? Well, it's mental health and stigma. It's, it's incredibly great. And, and now we've got another textbook on anti-Semitism. We have a big, big uh, major publication that has just been accepted. It'll probably be in PubMed near the end of the week on uh, diabetes. And and type 2 diabetes. That, that is not my uh, wheelhouse, but I'm the primary guy. I'm the last person on the team on, on the paper. And what we found was using the brain, we can make things better. Or if we teach people about the disorder, we can change it independent of the medicines that we're giving them. It's really phenomenal. And that ponies, that's a big high-tiered journal. We also have another high-tiered publication last year uh, in endocrinology that we looked at in regards to um, depression and diabetes. And we found that if you're depressed, statistically, you may develop type 2 diabetes. If you have that, you'll be depressed. This cycle, well, we had published a very interesting study on head-eye vestibular motion and showed that we can change uh, depressive states in patients doing the things that we do in what people call functional neurology or what we call clinical neuroscience or by using vestibular rehabilitation, which has a lot of evidence, and by using uh, eye movements, a lot of evidence, by using manipulation, which doesn't have so much evidence, by using aerobic exercise, which has got a lot of evidence. And we were able to take and change the, the person's outcome in so many different batteries of validated tests that had to do with anxiety, depression, insecurity, irritability. So it's a really, really good fit. And I was talking to uh, Ron Oberstein today from Life, and really interesting, um, you know, I get invited to present grand rounds at, at Yale University uh, Medical School Transplant Surgery. You say, what the hell is he doing there, doing this? I, I'm not a liver transplant surgeon, or I don't know how to take out kidneys, but, but I do know that those people that have got bad organs have encephalopathy, and I do know how to take care of that. Now, is my mechanism of taking care of it different than other people's? I can tell you unequivocally, yes, uh, and without a randomized controlled study, because I deal with patients. That's, that's my, my primary expertise, and you've got an ethical aspect when someone comes to see you and their mind isn't working or they can't think and they can't walk and their world is going down, 
I can't ethically put them in a group that doesn't get the treatment that I know is going to make a difference. So the things that I publish, and I don't have a lot, I've got like 60 papers in PubMed, uh, and they're good papers, some of them better than others, some of them older that probably I wouldn't do again today, but uh, no case studies, I've not published one case study in my life, but a lot of before after intervention. Um, and they're good, they're contributory. And as a consequence, people at these different institutions want to hear from me and our colleagues that do the things that, that we all do so, uh, so wonderfully. And I've never been able to do a wellness care practice because I see acute patients or patients that are with chronic disability. So uh, once I see them, they're done. I, I don't follow, I do follow them, but I don't have Professor, them. We if go I can on interrupt you. Well, oh, if I can interrupt you, you know, you're talking about your practice, every once in a while, I'll hear a scholar that's been with us for years and years and years, and uh, they'll talk about your practice that used to be, was it New Hampshire? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that practice? Because some of these, these older docs tell me about this and it sounded amazing. And, uh, but I've never really asked you about it. Uh, what, what was going on there? What, what type of facilities did you have? What types of patients were you treating? I mean, I used to hear rumors of, or stories of lines, literally like, just, I think you said it, like earlier, like you would get there, there'd be a line forming of people. And they'd be like, you know, doctors would be in that line waiting to get treated by you. Is that all true? Like what was going on? Can you tell us uh, about that? Yeah, it's pretty robust. Um, it was a crazy, you know, big, busy practice with patients sent from around the world, similar to what you've seen us do in Atlanta. But it was a little bit differently. People now will talk, well, I, I'm going to do uh, intensives. Well, intensives is uh, you're doing the, the Carrick paradigm because that's what I've always done. People come in, they'd be there for the day. So um, I knew, for instance, that aqua therapy was really amazing, especially people who couldn't walk or had brain injuries. So I would rent the YMCA pool and hire a, a kinesiotherapist to work with them. And we saw so many people work really well. I said, well, I have to do it better. So I built a great big pool uh, in my clinic. Uh, I would send people for variable resistant isotonic exercises and plyometric exercises and isokinetic activity. And I said, to hell with it. So I built that in my clinical facility. So I had a super, super huge clinical facility and people would go to rehab, they go to the pool, they go to the gym, they'd go into therapy and they'd see me. We were really pretty heavy on manipulation uh, in those days. And, um, the successes that we have, and you can say anecdotal or whatever, but it sure made us the place to be. And as a consequence of that, uh, I had patients, I'll give you an example, like if you talk about Cybex, everyone knows what Cybex is. Of course. And they have the isokinetics. We had the TEF machine, which is a trunk extension, flexion, and torso lift. Well, I had that before anybody had that. And all of the other centers, I'm talking about people from Spalding, from Mass General, at Harvard, UConn, everyone in New England would come up to me, to my facility, uh, every three weeks, and we would have rounds at my facility, and I would talk about patient experiences. I made some great friends uh, from that. I, I remember orthopedic surgeons, my good friend, you know, Barry Lang, 
would be there, and he was also a pilot. He had a push-pull Cessna. He'd fly in and use his buddies. They come in with people with ridiculopathy, no reflexes. They'd operate on them. They're spine surgery. I turn around, bang, the reflex would come back to person. They would go, "Holy sh! I've never seen this." And you know, I know chiropractors. They don't do that. Well, but I did, and um, that was cool. Again, no RCT. We're not going to get into it because these are people, you know, that are going. We would see almost all of these OBGYN patients, people's labor would stop. I can't tell you how many times labor and delivery, they stop, I come in, boom, you know, manipulations as kids would be popping out like ping pong balls. And um, it was really great, but it's very dynamic. There's nothing mystical about it, but it was, if you've never seen it, it like, and you know, because you've seen good quality, um, practice you know under your own hands with other people that do it really well it was amazing and the patients were real patients not from my local area i had all of them but from all over the world would uh would come to uh, to see us and uh it was it was pretty uh it was it was pretty fulfilling but it was exhausting um and i never have been tired with it i can still you know, work the 12, 13 hour patient days. And how can you get exhausting when you're giving people their life back? It was real, uh, but it was, um, you've never really seen anything like it. It was, it was amazing. I remember, and I would do these calls, a fire department would call, I had this one patient, I, I can't give you, I could give you her name, but I think she's dead. Anyways, she uh, was a big woman and she was, uh, her back popped out and she was on the toilet and screaming, couldn't move. The fire department came. They couldn't get her off because of this. Better call Doc Carrick. I went in there, and it was it's sort of a funny story now, but uh, I can manipulate, you know, really well. That's that's one of my skill sets. So I this woman, I guess, was 400 pounds if she was an ounce. And I said, okay, just relax. And I, I do figurative things. So I did a sitting lumbar. It was like, bang. You hear this, like, almost like a great big tree just breaking. Here's a big, and then all of a sudden, you hear this, boom, into the toilet. And this turd came out. She was like on this toilet for like seven hours. Boom, that went down. People were, holy moly. And she's passed the toilet paper, boom, got up. These people are like another miracle. I mean, stories like this uh, become legend. And it's sort of like comical. We talked to John Merrick or some of these people that did residencies. They'll tell you people coming in with like, I mean, like funny things, you know, what, and I, I'm not going to do it here, but a lot of them are just like, just wow. And it's just really sort of fulfilling. And then, you know, galloping on and on and then institutional practices and the ICU. And yeah. it just, you know, boom, 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 I'm, boom. I'm sure some people are going to hear that story and say that cannot be true. But at the same time, I'll say, listen, I have been in Grand Rounds, Professor Carrick, treating patients with Parkinson's. And he'll ask them, what is the one thing that you want? And they'll be like, I want to be able to have normal and, you know, closer to normal bowel movements. And within a day, they're, they're having those bowel movements again because that decreases in some of those patients. So it's like, you know, it's a funny story now, but I've seen that. Yeah, I, I, yeah it's all true. And, and we got videotapes. So, I mean, it's, you know, we, we had that. But it's not like, you know, believe it. It's not like we're selling something. It's the deal. And so what happens is, is that when you have someone that you love is ill, you want to take them to somebody who's going to uh, give them their life back or so. And 
the so many people that I know do that on a regular basis. Some of them through surgery, some of them through some sophisticated nutritional aspect. I do what I do in my wheelhouse, and there's a lot of stories and legends uh, for the people who've been there. I uh, just one little story, and I, I think I was talking to Dan Lane. I saw him in Washington, and we went to a hockey game, and I take care of these, you know, these these players. You're not going to see me on Facebook though with a picture like a me with, you know, I, I don't do that. Uh, but we were looking and we're talking about one time in Atlanta where they had this big, we call it Snowmageddon. And we had, you know, hundreds of patients coming from all over the globe and hundreds of doctors from all over the globe to assist me. And Atlanta shut down. It was snow, it was ice, cars were off the road. You couldn't get anywhere. Every patient made those appointments. Some people took 24 hours to get from the airport to see us. And doctors were staying in rooms and hotels with patients. And we had bunks up there. And people, people were making it. And I remember looking out the window and seeing patients pushing wheelchairs of other patients. And these guys could hardly walk. And they all made it. Now, if you tell that story, and it was a beautiful story. And there's no exaggeration of this. The, the love and care of people that are serving is one thing, that's beautiful. But the love and care and then the skill to make a difference in these patients' lives is something that, that you can really see. And not one person that was there was boasting about how great they were, not one person. And that's the sort of people that, that we train, hopefully, because we want to do it better. But we've got oodles of stories like that. We can sit down and, and just say, hey, let's you know tell the story of, this person or this person then you know sometimes they get changed depending on who's telling them but the facts are are the facts and they're they're beautiful stories but if you've been on rounds then you've seen it um now a lot of it well let's face it you know i'm touching 70 uh you're not going to be around for a long period of time but there's other people much better than me that you can see and and uh, that that's a little bit of beauty but you want to see people you know if somebody's telling you something you want to go and say, let me see this magic. Uh, maybe you're going to be disappointed. Maybe the magic it was in their mind. But there are some great people out there that actually do it. And you want to hunt them down and, and see it. And then uh, do it better than they did. You know, that's the deal. Give them credit, too, if they, if they, uh, if they help you. You know, that's the deal. Professor Carrick, uh, uh, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the term functional neurology and you said, you know, what they call it, you know, what we, and then you, your next line was what we call clinical neuroscience. So let's talk about that term functional neurology. Where did that come from? And, and why does it keep being used? It's a good term. It's one I don't use that much. It simply means that we're uh, increasing function. It's a paradigm. Traditionally, functional neurological lesions are lesions that have no organicity. Uh, in other words, it's in your head. Um, hysteria, things that uh, uh, Charcot would look at, those are functional neurological lesions. Uh, people sure. that would write about it from Babinski to Georges de la Tourette and uh, all of these you know, wonderful people so that it was realized that people could have tremors and shakes and things like that that didn't have a focal lesion 
and that they would have what we call a functional aspect. Well, now it's not. It's known that they weren't nuts or crazy or hysterical. That there are physiological lesions, or if the brain isn't working right, that you may have motor manifestations or other things. So the term is a pretty is a pretty good one, but it's been morphed by uh, largely by the press and get all sorts of people. You know, claim credit to it doesn't really matter. But I know uh, years ago. Uh, they did a PBS special on my work, and they talked about waking up the brain. Yeah, that one. Brain. It won an Emmy award and a Freddie's award, and they had filmed so many patients, and they picked uh, one patient that had had, you know, brain surgeries, another one that had, you know, airlows dose. You can watch it, and they're pretty miraculous activities. But they had filmed ones that were even much more miraculous. I said, why didn't you use those? They go because that's too miraculous. You know, that levels of miraculous, like, you know, the, this one here is people aren't gonna believe it because it's so great. And, you know, they talk about it, it's amazing, you know, and they saw it. And they did another one with 2020, where they filmed people and looked at it for six months. It was like, how many people are you gonna look at? You're gonna film your patients, fall for six months, and if they weren't all cured, then they would report that, hey, maybe this doesn't work for a long time. They all were, they were all fine. So they reported on, on that. So we've had a lot of those, uh, those sort of things. So uh, functional neurology, I get a lot of credit for it. I sort of wish that I wouldn't because uh, with that, then you have to deal with every whack nut that comes down the street that's talking about functional this and functional that and the other sort of, sort of thing. I'm just a plain old, uh, plain old clinician. At Karen can say we talk about clinical neurosciences. We talk about increasing human function. And, but people love the term functional neurology. I'll give you an example. I get a call from California yesterday for someone who's got a real high, high-end uh, athlete and wants to know who's a character-trained functional neurologist. Now, they use the term. And I'm not going to go and say, well, you know, we don't like that term. You know, man, I can deal with that. And... Uh, boom, I, you know, can give them someone in their area that I know is going to be great, whether it's going to be like in Chicago or San Francisco or Minneapolis or LA, we've got great people, or whether it's going to be in Amsterdam or Paris, we've got great people. And, but the world talks about functional neurology. There's been a recent uh, aspect where somebody's been writing some papers searching, you know, for, uh, you know, what's the evidence of functional neurology? It's a paradigm. So what do you use? So if I use vestibular rehabilitation in a functional neurological paradigm, you're not going to find uh, a functional neurological aspect of gaze stabilization. doesn't exist, but you'll find gaze stabilization as, as that type of activity. And there's all sorts of RCTs in regards to that. Uh, that I think the confusion, part of the confusion is that people, they'll say the term functional neurologist and they think that's a profession but it's really a paradigm uh, utilized by many professions. We have medical doctors, we have physical therapists, physiotherapists, chiropractic physicians, acupuncturists, athletic trainers, neurooptometrists, all leveraging that paradigm, but they're still their professions. They're still a physical therapist. They're not, they're not, they're not all of a sudden, they, I am now a functional neurologist. I mean, they're still a physical therapist that leverages that paradigm. Let me tell you, yesterday, call for University of Montreal colleague wanting a recommendation for a functional neurologist. Call from MGH looking for who I consider to be the best functional 
neurologist. Call from LA looking as it for the best functional neurologist. That's their terms. I know what they mean. And you're right, because we've got, we have people that are amazing physical therapists that practice the paradigm of functional neurology that I would go to with, with the healthcare. We've got, you know, some people in medicine or chiropractic, it, you don't own, own something. It's, it's a common term um, and it comes, it comes with it. A lot of people are so worried about delineating who they are and in individual scopes. I'm proud of what I am. My credentials are there. There it is. But, you know, I will have people describe me. One person described me as a cardiac transplant surgeon in one, you know, big thing. I've been introduced as everything from, you know, a soup maker to a, a rainmaker sort of thing. It's going to happen. And when you give interviews, what you say may not be what comes out. And, um, if you do a video interview, they can film you for four hours and put in a 20 second deal of you picking your nose. So you don't know, that's not your authoritative uh, type of thing. And you know, we get calls from the press every day, every day at Carrick Institute. The majority of people I don't give an interview to. I'll give them to some people if they have somebody else that's recommended them. But I don't need to jump into this, um, you know, aspect of, uh, you know, weird sort of a deal or, or whatever. Our press has been generally pretty damn good when you look at it compared to anything to anybody else. And we don't look for it. We try to take away from it and uh, onwards. But we got good people uh, in that functional neurological paradigm. But that term is here to stay. Society likes it. It, well, here's, I, I have, I, I have some hopes for it though. And if I could share you my hopes. So uh, back before I even went to school, uh, I used to be a trainer and then there was this whole phase where, you, you know, there was your trainers and there was your functional trainers. And what that meant was that your trainer didn't do traditional exercise, which was, you know, an up and down plane and a sagittal plane. It was, they do things that are more realistic, you know, more rotation, like you're picking up a box off the ground or, you know, reaching up for soup can. And now, then it became the thing to become a functional trainer, more realistic to life. Uh, but then you fast forward a couple of years and then that, that term went away because all training became functional training. That paradigm became so part of the fabric of training people for athletic development and fitness and injury prevention that it became the norm that that term went away. My hope is that people look at what they think is functional neurology in that paradigm. And it becomes so part of what is physical therapy, chiropractic and medicine. And, and all that means is that we're gonna have all those professions taking into account the individual neurophysiology of the patients in front of them. And I think that's something that every single profession can get behind and support. You know, that, I, I, agree. Is, I agree with you. Uh, you know, it brings out all the characters. The one thing, that we see um, is, you know, people praise the things that we do, which is really great. There always is, you know, uh, people um, who will denigrate other people, whether it's denigrating a different profession or an individual within that profession. We don't do that. If we had um, any of our faculty or peers that talked ill of somebody else, uh, we, we don't tolerate that. It's just not even reasonable. So 
you'll have a lot of uh, old things where people might say, oh, uh, Mother Teresa, well, how great could she been? You know, she was a chiropractor. Ah, there it is. Whereas if she was something else, then it would be great. So that sort of thing of denigration is not good. We have it from some people within our own professions where, you know, they don't like this guy's technique so that they'll badmouth that person. Well, that's not good, right? You know, the the activator guy badmouthing the Gonstead or the Gonstead badmouthing the SOT. Our profession has been rife with all of those those things. And when you look at the characters that do it, if your stuff is really good, you don't have to tell anybody why the other guy is no good. I mean, you don't have to tell them. It's it's really evident. And in regards to functional neurology, it's a paradigm. It's multidisciplinary. When somebody does a surgery, uh, you know, um, you've seen me with a, with a patient. You know, I, I've seen say, you got into this. With this lesion, I know you were there, and I'm not going to say the name of the person because he's very famous, but I said, you know, I've got a friend in Japan who does this surgery in the globus pallidum, and that's what you're going to need to be able to do your job. He's the best in the world. Um, go and see him. So he did. And uh, because I wasn't, I, what I could do wouldn't be the best thing to do. And it's an amazing outcome. But going to Japan. But now this guy who, this Japanese guy, if, if Ted Carrick calls up that patient's in that same day, other people can't do that because he's in that functional paradigm. You see, it's a beautiful you know who I'm talking about, right? And, uh, you know, it's a beautiful outcome so that it's multidisciplinary and it comes back to us. It gives me goosebumps because people refer to us. You get the calls every day at Carrick Institute. Who can we go to? We send, I, I don't even give numbers. Everyone says, what? I mean, I, I've heard people say, oh, you know, I see a thousand cases of scars. It's more than I've ever seen. I don't even think there is that many. But, you know, a lot of people have seen thousands. But we refer a large number of people because we've got trained people that can do it and they're all marvelous but we do have we do have some characters that they're the best and everybody else pales in front of them i don't like that it's not even reasonable you know some people are better than we are we can just do the best that we can do and and hopefully not do harm uh and do it better next day and so far that's been my life's history, I guess, getting back to your topic that we just went all the way around. But uh, love of neurology and systems, boy, we could, Freddie's, that's a, that's a lifetime uh, talk. If you ever read uh, Marcel Proust and you look at his literature, when you look at a dying man and he sees everything coming in front of his life that he's had, and you relive it, you see all of these little segments i mean those questions are like that with me you know hopefully not on the deathbed but you know when you look at uh, the reality and reflection uh there's so much that we can talk about so i'm glad you invited me just to share as we do and this is long i don't even know if anyone's even gonna watch it because you know i you know i, I guarantee you people will because we, we put things up on our youtube and I, I, we get emails, <laughs> so I go, I go, I can't believe they watched that whole video. Um, yeah. Professor, I, you know what, we have, 
I have a, a long list of questions. We're going to stop here today, uh, maybe for the next one, because I know we're, we have a schedule. We'll do some more clinical questions and we'll give people a mix. But I appreciate your time. Hey, by the way, I, I am going to call this show Ted and Fred's Excellent Adventure, just so you know. So I hope you're okay with that title. I'm going to take your, your, your no answer as uh, that being okay, and then, and then away we go with that name. So, Professor, yeah, I will see. Of course, okay. Ted's first. Now, if you called it Fred and Ted, I might. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Ted and Fred's excellent adventure. I understand. You got it. You got so. But I'm a Frederick too, so we could do it. You know, it could, F be, it could it could be Fred and Fred's excellent adventure. Technically, it could be F squared. Whatever you whatever you do is fine with me. Right, Professor, I'll catch you tomorrow. Thank you very much for your your time today. I enjoyed my time with you as always. You're gracious. Thank you, Freddie. Bye bye. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.